big a Star Wars fan are you? What did you feel the first time when you saw the Millennium Falcon jump into hyperspace in Episode 4, A New Hope? And do you still feel the same way when you see it again today? Are you 50 years old plus and still have a lightsaber on your bookshelf? What is the future of mechanical prosthetics in the medical industry? You think about the difference between cyborgs such as Darth Vader and robots such as R2-D2 and C-3PO. And finally, how do you build the Death Star? More importantly, how does the Death Star move? And finally, how does the Death Star generate enough power to create a beam of energy that can destroy a planet? I hope you will join me in this five-part exploration on the science of Star Wars with Dr. Ben Lachlan. Ben Lachlan is a healthcare executive, and in addition to his medical expertise, he is also a degreed astrophysicist, so we can get to the truth behind some of the most exciting aspects of Star Wars. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special five-part podcast series on greetings and felicitations. In this series, Ben and I are going to have a lot of fun talking about some of the science of Star Wars. We're going to explore scenes from each one of the original three episodes that help illustrate some of these points and talk about where science may take us in the future. It's one of the most fun series that I've done, and I know you will enjoy it. This special series on greetings and felicitations, The Science of Star Wars, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode one, Traveling in Hyperspace. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to our special five-part podcast series with Dr. Ben Lockwin, where we're going to take up one of our collective favorite topics, which is the science of Star Wars. Over the series, we're going to take up traveling in hyperspace, fighting with lightsabers, mechanical prosthetics, cyborgs versus robots, and the Death Star. So, Ben, first of all, welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time to uh, do this series with me. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure. Nice to hear from you again. So um, we're going to not have to hopefully set these scenes up too much, but I will set this one up a little bit. If you are of any age in the 70s and you went to see Star Wars, hopefully with a little enhancement uh, inside of you, when you saw the uh, jump to first jump to hyperspace, your eyes bugged out. You said, wow, uh, in uh, about uh, warp 12, and your mind was blown. Uh, I still feel that when I see that from the first movie uh, and even when uh, in subsequent movies, but that was one of the the great science fiction moments for me. But Ben, I really wanted to ask you, um, is, is, or was that realistic? And is that something that uh, mere humans might be able to do someday? Yeah. So everybody loves that. The first time you see it, like you said, it's a mind blown kind of moment. You see the star field kind of stretch around the, uh, the the cockpit, and the ship 
disappears at super high speed. But um, there's there's a few issues really with the jump to light speed. And I would say principally the first one is that it's prohibited by Einstein's special relativity. So nothing with mass can achieve the speed of light, which is why the only things really traveling around at the speed of light are photons. Um, and there's, there's a, a reason for that, which is there is this interesting relationship where as, as your velocity increases, so too does your mass. So mass is just a measure of a, of a body's resistance to change. Just like it's harder, enormously harder, to get an ocean liner to move than it is to push a bicycle, as you get to towards the speed of light, a ship's mass grows and grows, so it would be impossible to achieve light speed. So I would say, uh, you know, the, the, the first component of that is I, I watch it now, and I think still looks cool, and unfortunately, not likely to happen. Let me uh, let me ask you, Ben. You used uh, the term uh, Einstein's law of special relativity. Uh, from what I remember of the law of relativity, we could actually have the bending of light. And you started off by talking about the visual effects of seeing uh, stars sort of bend around you. Is it inconsistent with both uh, Einstein's law of relativity and his law of special relativity? Um, you know, it's. It, it is inconsistent, yes. So it's it's definitely true that there's what's called gravitational lensing, which means if we look at distant objects like with the Hubble Space Telescope and hopefully coming soon with the James Webb Telescope, um, if there is a distant star or galaxy and the light from that is, is approaching us on Earth and at some point in the light's path, there's a massive object. It could be a black hole. It could be another galaxy. Uh, it could be a massive star. The gravitational field around that object bends the light. And so it creates these gravitational rings, these what are called Einstein rings, because it acts as a lens. So the space-time itself is warped, and it creates a bending of the light. So that part of it is, is definitely a thing. Um, Seeing the stars stretch kind of from out in front of you to, uh, you know, alongside the cockpit radially wouldn't happen because you wouldn't be approaching all of those distant stars and galaxies fast enough. So, for example, the closest star to Earth is about four light years away. So even if you could travel at the speed of light, it, that means it would take you four years before you could approach that next star. So you wouldn't see this you know, radial streaking of all these stars as you pass them almost instantaneously. And what would be the impact of such a massive acceleration and then deceleration on the human body if you could actually um, go past Einstein's law of special relativity? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. I, this is one that uh, Chuck Yeager knows a lot about and all of our pilots and astronauts. I mean, really... Besides that it's prohibited by Einstein's uh, special relativity to travel at the speed of light, the other is this acceleration problem that you're mentioning. And, and really it's a combination of the super high acceleration rate plus the inertia, which is this resistance to changing motion. So everybody on the ship, whether it's you know the X-Wing fighter, the Millennium Falcon, any of these craft, they're going from, let's say, stationary 
to warp speed in, oh, I don't know, about three seconds. So humans, including jet pilots, can only tolerate between about 10 or 20 Gs of acceleration before falling unconscious or dying, and that's after about a second. So people, when they're put in uh, accelerators, they can only withstand 5 Gs for about a couple minutes, 3 Gs for about an hour. So if you were to accelerate from stopped to light speed in, let's say, 3 seconds, that's about 30 million Gs. So Han and Chewie and the others would be disintegrated. Their seats wouldn't hold them anyway. <laughs> the ship wouldn't hold together from the inertial forces. The thrusters basically would just push forward through the still stationary ship and blow it apart. Um, you know, because the speed of light is, is such a high rate of speed. It's 186,000 miles per second uh, or 300,000 kilometers per second. So as an example of how fast that is, if, if Han took off from Moss Eisley and accelerated at 3 Gs, which is something that we could tolerate for maybe an hour, if you accelerated at 3 Gs to half the speed of light, it would take him two and a half months to reach half the speed of light. Even if he were to go at 9 Gs, which would be fatal, it would take 19 days to get to half the speed of light. So we're talking about at rates of travel, velocities that are just incredibly fast. So not only would it be impossible for a human to tolerate that kind of acceleration, um, but, well, and also then there's the deceleration. So the same problem exists for coming out of hyperspace. So then you have negative acceleration. So going from light speed to zero in a few seconds. So the same G-forces apply, but at the opposite direction. And we're not seeing any retro rockets or reverse thrusters. The ship simply just seems to slow down. So we don't know what these reverse forces are at work. You'd have to have an equal and oppositely powered thruster on the other side of the ship to decelerate it. And uh, to conclude this episode, I wanted to ask about navigation. In the first Star Wars, the, before they go into hyperspace, there's a line that never appears in any other Star Wars, and that is... I have to get the coordinates from the Nava computer. And uh, then he goes, uh, Han proceeds to discuss, uh, you don't want to uh, come out of hyperspace in an asteroid belt. And they're aiming towards a planet called Alderaan that we'll discuss in a later episode. Uh, but are, do you have any thoughts on if, you could, if mm. you could overcome problems one and two, how you would navigate three-dimensionally? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the average... Here's the thing, I think. The average density in deep space is about one hydrogen molecule per cubic meter, plus or minus, which means there's almost nothing out there, which is a good thing, because anything that would be in your path at that speed would be instantly fatal to the craft and the occupants. Uh, but really what you would be doing is, is plotting the forecasted coordinates, just like we do with something like trying to get a satellite around Mars or to land a rover on Mars. We basically have to plan ahead to where Mars will be in many months from now when our spacecraft arrives. So if you think about that, we just don't shoot a craft at stationary Mars. It's basically like lobbing a football that's going to be traveling for six months or nine months or more, and it lands at the same time as... Mars arrives at that spot in 3D space. 
So it's really an incredible, incredibly choreographed dance of uh, the calculus of motion to get it there. So same thing applies. You've got to forecast where these planets would be in order to get yourself there when they arrive. I don't want to make this sound trite, Ben, but that almost sounds like uh, advanced trigonometry to me. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Yep. Advanced trigonometry, uh, calculus, and a lot of ellipses because all these planetary bodies travel in elliptical orbits, not circular orbits. Well, Ben, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for our first episode, but I hope our listeners will join us again in episode two where we take up uh, the topic that is near and dear to the heart of every young boy, which is fighting with lightsabers. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Oh, sounds great, Tom. Can't wait. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Science of Star Wars in the Greetings and Felicitations podcast. As I said, this is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Do you have a topic that you would like to explore over a five-part podcast series? It can be anything from history to science to the movies or anything else because you're only limited by your imagination. If so, please contact me and let's discuss having a five-part podcast series for you or your business on the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network dedicated to business risk, business ethics, compliance, and risk management. I'm Tom Fox, the founder of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again for our next episode on the science of Star Wars.